time for Legally Speaking on CFAX 1070. Joined, as always, by Michael Mulligan, barrister and solicitor with Mulligan Defense Lawyers. Good morning, Michael. How are you? I'm doing great. Uh, great to be talking to you. Some very interesting cases on the docket this week, including an update on a multi-year dispute between a U.S. billionaire and the Nicola Valley Fish and Game Club. It doesn't sound like an even matchup there, does it? I was going uh, to say when it comes to litigation and the ability to finance it, I would suspect that billionaires are very adequately provisioned for that fact. Yes. Well, I must say they have to no doubt about that. The particular place in question um, is the Douglas Lake Ranch, uh, which is owned by the Douglas Lake Cattle Company, which in turn is owned by Stan, hoping I'm going to pronounce this correctly, uh, Cronkey, the owner of the uh, NHL Colorado Avalanche and the uh, NFL LA Rams, uh, the particular ranch in question is apparently uh, the largest ranch in Canada, and it is also represents the largest private landholding in all of British Columbia. Um, it, geographically, it would be if you sort of drew a line between Merritt and Vernon, it would be kind of in the middle of that area, occupying a fair bit of it. Um, and the particular uh, issue uh, that's arisen, and it's one that's been percolating along for uh, a number of uh, years, uh, has to do with uh, access to two different lakes, uh, which are entirely surrounded uh, by the ranch. Yes. Uh, and as well, uh, access uh, to uh, and use of a road called Stony Lake Road, uh, which would run essentially to the, the lakes. Uh, and what happened is that uh, the ranch owned by the billionaire uh, decided to, a number of years ago, block off access to the road. They closed a gate and put up another gate uh, and put up no trespassing signs and tried to stop people from uh, accessing the road uh, to go in and use the lakes for fishing, basically. Yes. Uh, and uh, there was a dispute about that, including with the local Aboriginal community, yes. um, which that part was eventually settled following a blockade. They, they gave the Aboriginal community there, I think, a key to the gate, hmm. uh, but they were otherwise trying to stop anyone else from coming in and uh, using the lakes to fish. Uh, and the reason why that's controversial uh, goes back to the original grant of this parcel of land back in the 1800s that the ranch eventually purchased. The crown grant of land does not include the lakes. Hmm. <laughs> the province maintains ownership uh, over bodies of water like that. Also, uh, if something in this context is a public road, that also wasn't granted in the original grant of land back in the 1800s. Therefore, the ranch now can't own, doesn't own the road, right, if it's a public road. Hmm. Now, various things complicated those issues over the years, including um, the fact that uh, a number of years ago, the ranch uh, decided to erect uh, dams and flooded part of where the original road was. Um, and they made uh, one of their arguments, they called it the original trial, a uh, fellow who they claimed to be an expert who purported to testify that one of these lakes wasn't in fact a lake at all. It was, in his words, an ephemeral pond, which would seasonally hold water in the spring. Interesting. Uh, that was rejected. The court found that these lakes were in fact sort of a kilometer long. For many years, the province had stocked them with fish. Hmm. Uh, and the original trial judge found that 
this was a public road, and she looked back at things including original surveys from the 1800s mm-hmm. and significantly a aerial photo of the uh, lakes and road from back in the 1940s. Mm-hmm. And at that point, you could see in the photograph, according to the judge, that the road, in fact, ran to the lakes and that she concluded this was a public road. Uh, and the ranch, in fact, that very person they purported to be uh, an expert at the original trial, uh, was also an engineer. Uh, and he at one point uh, engaged in uh, damming and water diversion to the lakes, which flooded uh, where the original road was. Interesting. And so their argument was, well, there is no road running to these things, and moreover, they aren't lakes. That was the claim. Hmm. Um, that did not succeed, and the Fish and Game Club triumphed over the billionaire um, at the original trial. And the result of that uh, was that the uh, ranch was ordered to open up the gates uh, and allow people to use the public road uh, to drive to the lakes to fish. Yes. And, and part of the uh, theory there is that, um, and the judge did this exhaustive uh, examination uh, of the original grant of land and a review of um, things including through the common law surrounding the right to access uh, property uh, like that. I must say that the uh, trial judge in this case uh, must really have uh, uh, stayed awake in uh, property law and law school uh, because this is an exhaustive review of it. Mm-hmm. Um, one of the other interesting little bits in here that I enjoyed reading the original decision involved the ranch claim that they owned all the fish in the lake. Hmm. Uh, their claim was that they stocked the lake, uh, and therefore they owned the fish. Um, and uh, the judge rejected that argument as well, drawing a distinction between ownership of domesticated animals and ownership of what he described as feral beings, such as wild fish. Oh, yes, I do recall that language from when we covered the original story, yes. Yeah, and so... Releasing the fish into the lake doesn't mean that you forever own all the fish in the lake. Uh, and so the uh, Fish and Game Club and the public, by extension, uh, wound up essentially uh, winning on all of those uh, arguments, uh, much to the chagrin of the billionaire ranch owner. Uh, and so this week, uh, the billionaire ranch owner was in the Court of Appeal um, arguing uh, that that trial decision should be uh, overturned. Uh, and arguing about um, things like, you know, are these navigable waters? and You know, is this a pond or a lake? And all of these sort of things. But the import of this case from the public's perspective goes far beyond um, the sort of the narrow issue of, you know, can people in the fishing game club or people in the area go down this public road uh, to fish in these lakes? Uh, but it has application, for example, uh, you can imagine in other places like on Vancouver Island, yes. uh, because where you have large land ownings, uh, holdings that manage to subsume and surround a, a lake, for example, yes. does that mean that the person who manages to buy all the property around the lake, therefore get to exclude all public from using the lake? Yes. Um, and where there are disputes about it, what you're going to see are examinations looking back at things like, um, you know, what was the original grant there? It, because in uh, in British Columbia, you, you, there isn't often a, a grant of ownership to, like when you own property, that doesn't mean uh, you own everything uh, about it. For example, there can be mineral rights or the, the other crown can uh, withhold rights to things like, uh, you know, lakes and water and things of this sort. So it requires an examination of, 
um, sort of what was originally granted and what does the current owner own. Uh, and then there can also be an examination of things like, because the, the legislation can exclude ownership to things like public roads, that can be more ambiguous than it might seem, right? Roads and I think trails, in fact. And so that can require an examination of, well, what exactly is that, uh, you know, road or trail where the current landowners decided to put up and lock a gate currently? Are they permitted to do that? Or was, in fact, that a public road, which they've just tried to, you know, in this case, flood or put up no trespassing signs or put up a gate? And so the case has bigger implications in terms of, I think, what's sometimes referred to as the right to roam. Uh, and yes. in fact, there was a piece of legislation which uh, I think it was Andrew Weaver introduced yes. uh, dealing with that, which never got anywhere uh, previously, but the, it didn't pass. But the judge in the original trial decision here suggested uh, that something like that really needs to occur. The judge said, you know, this case demonstrates that these conflicts of interest in property show that there's a uh, necessity for legislative action to resolve the issue. Um, and so um, there are some, I think, really important um, issues like this to be decided, including in places like uh, Vancouver Island, where things can be even more complicated. We've got things like rail lines and grants of uh, various rights that uh, flowed from those things, and you've got crown land, and you've got things can be, I think this case makes clear, much, much more complicated than what some people might think when you're dealing with, you know, sort of residential house and yard, right? You know, somebody thinks, well, that's my property. Obviously, nobody can come into my, you know, front yard and start, you know, fishing or (laughs) enjoying recreational activities there. But it can become much more um, muddy uh, when you've got things like uh, historical access to a place or you've got um, things like uh, navigable rivers, or you've got things like a uh, lake which has been subsumed. Um, and so it'll be interesting to see both what the Court of Appeal does for this particular case, but uh, whether eventually the government decides to take up some of these issues and make uh, some bigger policy decisions about, you know, what uh, what is the extent of uh, private landowners' capacity to exclude other people um, and uh, on the other hand, uh, should we have uh, a model which would uh, more clearly recognize uh, the right to do things like, you know, show up and uh, fish in the lake, um, or uh, whether if you manage to surround the thing, uh, it's yours. So, mm, yeah, interesting. Anyways, good, good on the Fish and Game Club. <laughs> they, they're obviously been carrying on for many years uh, doing this. Uh, but uh, hopefully at the uh, end of the day we get this case decided uh, and then there can be some uh, public uh, uh, input into how we ought to resolve these sort of issues more generally. All right, let's take our break here at Legally Speaking. We'll be back in just a moment on CFAX 1070. Back to Legally Speaking on CFAX 1070 as we continue our conversation with Michael Mulligan, Defense Counsel with Mulligan Defense Lawyers. Michael, anything else on that last story before we move on to the next case? No, I think that's uh, I think that's about it. We're going to have to wait and see, of course, what the Court of Appeal does with all of this. But uh, you know, once again, good on the Nicola Valley Fish and Game Club uh, for uh, hanging in there with their uh, battle with the uh, billionaire 
uh, owner of the Douglas Lake uh, Cattle Company. Indeed. <laughs> we'll see what comes of it. Another matter to be considered by the Court of Appeal, it's actually dismissing, I'm reading here, an appeal to permit posthumous use of reproductive material, a clinical term, Michael, for something that I suspect could be of great emotional importance to parties involved. Yes, I think no doubt about that. It certainly comes from a tragic uh, circumstance. The uh, tragic circumstance involved a uh, young couple who had been married for a few years who had a child together, and then the uh, husband unexpectedly uh, died. Um, and the uh, wife made uh, an emergency uh, after-hours application uh, to a Supreme Court judge uh, asking for a, an order to preserve uh, reproductive material uh, from her deceased husband. Uh, and she got that order, uh, the sort of emergency after-hours order. Uh, and the judge who made the order made the order saying, look, uh, essentially this is an after-hours emergency application. If I don't make the order, you know, this is going to be uh, moot by the time it can be more fully uh, argued because the material would then no longer be viable or available. So the judge made the order. Um, and the background is that the uh, the two individuals, the deceased husband and his wife, um, the evidence is that they took great cho joy in being parents. Uh, they had one child, but they wished to have more together. And they importantly wanted to have uh, siblings for the child that they already had. Um, and so that seemed to be common ground, right? Mm -hmm. uh, but the trouble ar arose here because uh, in Canada, we've got legislation dealing with um, assisted reproduction uh, that says that uh, material of this sort cannot be used uh, unless there is prior written consent uh, from the party from whom it is obtained. Uh, and so uh, the once the case was then argued following that, uh, emergency after-hours application, uh, the judge concluded that, uh, unfortunately, um, the uh, wife was not not going to be permitted to use the material and it would have to be destroyed. Uh, that led to this appeal to the Court of Appeal, which just came out, um, and the Court of Appeal was grappling with various different arguments the, uh, the grieving wife was making yeah. uh, to be allowed to use this material. Um, and um, while the legislation seems clear, um, she made various arguments, including uh, that it should be interpreted as a way, in a way to say that um, it should only apply where a person's death was foreseeable and shouldn't be an absolute prohibition on the use of this kind of material where there's an unforeseen sudden death. Yes. Um, that, uh, from her perspective, was not accepted by the Court of Appeal. Uh, in an exercise of, I think, what can be referred to as judicial restraint. Mm -hmm. The Court of Appeal said, look, you know, the legislation seems clear and said, you know, to read the statute in a way that would amend it by judicial decree is something they have no right to do. Indeed. Um, and um, she made uh, another argument, uh, which she advanced again in the Court of Appeal, to the effect that, well, look, once the judge made that order to remove the uh, material and preserve it, um, it should be treated as property, and she should have inherited that property upon her husband's death. He died without a will, and she would have been, therefore, the beneficiary of his um, estate. Interesting. Um, and um, so she argued, well, this should be treated as property, 
Uh, and she uh, even tried an argument saying, look, if I can't use this material in Canada, if that's my property, I'd like to have it sent somewhere else where I could use it. Hmm. Um, none of those got traction in the Court of Appeal. Uh, but um, I should say the Court of Appeal uh, did conclude that the uh, their order that the material cannot be given to her and therefore be destroyed uh, should be stayed for 60 days to allow um, her to consider whether she wishes to advance uh, an application to appeal to the Supreme Court of Canada. Um, and so it may not be the end of it yet, uh, but the case is a good illustration of just how complicated some of these sort of moral and ethical questions can be um, as medical science uh, advances and permits things to occur that just people may not have contemplated. Um, and here, um, the, the wife pointed out as well that when this legislation was passed, making it a, a, an offense to uh, use material like this um, without prior written consent, uh, that the government had talked about trying to um, uh, publicize that so that people could arrange their affairs accordingly. Yes. Uh, and that didn't occur in the way that was contemplated, mm. um, which I'm sure is not, I'm sure it's something that unless uh, somebody was, you know, listening to this show and thinking about it or some similar thing, reading an article about this, how would anyone know that they would need to organize their life in a way to contemplate this kind of uh, unforeseen circumstance? Mm. So... You know, perhaps it's one more thing when somebody's in, um, you know, doing their will or uh, and so forth. It's the kind of thing which somebody may want to give some consideration to uh, if indeed uh, this is something which uh, they would want to make uh, possible uh, if they die suddenly. Um, so certainly a tragic case. It may not be the end of it, but at least that's the end of it from the Court of Appeals perspective. Uh, their conclusion was this legislation doesn't permit any exception. It's not ambiguous. It's not our job to fix that. Um, and previously, the Supreme Court of Canada has found legislation to be uh, constitutionally permissible. So uh, whether uh, the case heads there or not, uh, it, uh, I think at least is a cautionary for, uh, tale for people that are trying to organize their, their affairs. Indeed. We have four minutes left. The Court of Appeal allowing an appeal from a conviction for sexual assault on a 13-year-old boy by a woman in a Victoria transition house. Yeah, very interesting case in terms of the gender roles, right? Yes. You don't see a lot of uh, female accused uh, in sexual assault cases. Um, and the other interesting thing um, here um, is that the accused in this case testified uh, that um, she did not initiate the conduct in question, but said that the 13-year-old uh, initiated it without her consent. Hmm. Essentially, she testified that he had sexually assaulted her. Yes. Um, the boy, although younger, was both larger and heavier than her. Um, her evidence at trial was that um, she wanted to scream but could not, tried to say no but felt paralyzed. Nothing came out when she tried to call out. And the instructions that the judge gave to the jury who did convict her um, included saying that uh, if you find as a fact that the accused made no outcry, even though the circumstances were such that it would be reasonable for her to do so, you may take that into account when deciding whether her evidence that she was actually assaulted is credible. And that, and some other comments, led the Court of Appeal to conclude that um, that was a misinstruction to the jury uh, because uh, it is a uh, failing to instruct the jury uh, that they should not be relying upon 
uh, myths uh, and stereotypes concerning uh, the behavior of somebody uh, who is the victim of a sexual assault. Indeed. Um, and the Court of Appeal pointed out that it's long been recognized that there's no rule on how people who are the victims of trauma like sexual assault will behave. Mm. And so on that basis, overturned the conviction and has ordered a new trial. So it's an interesting case, both because of the gender roles, which are unusual, uh, and because the Court of Appeal pointed out uh, that um, that sort of uh, reasoning uh, is something which is not reliable, should not be so, uh, and that uh, juries should be carefully instructed about that. So a very interesting uh, reversal of gender roles and how those that kind of prohibited unreliable reasoning can, can uh, go both ways. I think it's useful here, and I know you've helpfully educated us with respect to this in the past, but to remind our audience that the Court of Appeal is a court of error. It is not merely a, a chance to spin the wheel again and attempt to retry something. There has to be some sort of error of law that is committed that can be remedied. It's not merely to reweigh everything. That's true. And in cases like this, where it was a jury trial, what's really often going on in the Court of Appeal is analyzing what instructions did the judge give to the jury. Yes. And one of the things which a judge will often say in a jury trial is say, look, you jury the judge of the facts. I'm the judge of the law. And we'll say, you need to take what I'm telling you as the law as being the law and follow my instructions. Because a judge will often say, look, if I'm wrong and what I'm telling you to do, that can be corrected by the Court of Appeal, who's going to assume you've done what I've asked you to do. But if you don't do what I'm telling you to do, nobody's going to be able to sort that out on appeal. Um, and so, like in this case, often what goes on in an appeal on a jury trial is analyzing what exactly did the judge tell the jury to do, and, and were those instructions um, accurate? Um, and uh, here, uh, that instruction was found not to be accurate, and that's why a new trial was ordered. Another interesting fact in terms of the gender roles, the judge at the trial was female, and two of the three judges in the Court of Appeal are female uh, as well, which I think is an interesting thing. Um, so the, uh, I think the, the big takeaway there for all of us right, is to uh, be aware that those kind of stereotypes are, are not things which should be applied, and we ought not to assume uh, in any context that uh, somebody who is the victim of that uh, kind of behavior um, is going to behave in a particular way in accordance with some, some stereotype, uh, and be that the accused or the complainant. Uh, and uh, here, uh, the result of not uh, pointing that out uh, clearly enough to the jury um, is that uh, a new trial has been ordered. That's all the time we have for today. Michael Mulligan, thank you as always for the benefit of your knowledge in these matters. Until next week. Thank you so much. Have a great Have day. Have a great day. Bye now.